Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and your goodness and the way you run your kingdom. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, heal our hearts, prepare us to be your witnesses at this special time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the uh, quarterly, The Promise, God's Everlasting Covenant, and the title is The New Covenant, and the lesson asks us to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What is the difference between the new and the old covenant? Where it's written. I like where you're going with that. Was God different? In the two. Did God offer something different in the two? Yes. Salvation. Yes. What if it's like in a marriage when some one of the spouses is straight and then they decide to come back together and renew their vows? Okay. Maybe that's So is God offering something different in the two covenants or is he offering salvation in both of them? I mean, he's offering salvation, but he's offering to write it on their hearts instead of being out here in stone form. So, so did God offer something different, or did he do something different? He did something different. He didn't offer something different. So what he did different is what you're saying. In the Old Covenant, he wrote the law on stone, but in the New Covenant, he writes it in the heart. What covenant did Adam, Enoch, Abraham participate in, the new or the old? Adam, Enoch, Abraham. New or the old covenant? The new covenant, that's right. What about after Sinai? What about Moses and Elijah, who were both at the Mount of Transfiguration, so we know they're already in heaven. Did they participate in the new or the old? Moses and Elijah. First paragraph in Sunday's lesson reads, It is clear, and see if this is actually clear or not. Oftentimes when people say it's clear, it's really not that clear. Okay, It is clear the new covenant is not so different from the old covenant made with Israel on Mount Sinai. In fact, the problem with Sinai covenant was not that it was old or outmoded. The problem instead was that it was broken. The problem was they just didn't obey it right. If they just performed better, kept the rules better, didn't break it. As I read this, I was actually felt sad because it's diagnostic again that the authors continue to see the scriptures through the false law lens. The idea that God's law functions like human law, sin is rule breaking, salvation is legal adjustment of a, through a blood payment on your account. They really don't see that the covenant of Sinai is not the same as the covenant, as the new covenant. Because it was not simply based on, it wasn't based on faith, 
to change hearts. Instead, it was based on a system of works, based on obedience to rules. In other words, the new covenant is a covenant of design law in which God heals damaged hearts and minds. He writes the law in the heart and mind, transforms, heals, recreates. The old covenant is the covenant of human law in which sinners perform and obey rules and bring sacrifices to pay their way back into the grace of an offended God. That's the bit. These are not the same covenants at all. Not that God wanted them to see it that way. That's the way they chose to understand and approach it. Okay, all the Lord says, we'll do it. We'll work hard. We'll earn our way in by doing all this stuff. That's the old covenant. That's the system of imperialism. That's how humans operate their governments. You've got a debt to pay. Go pay it off. Go work your, your um, 10 months on the chain gang. Or it's pay your time uh, in, in jail. I've paid my debt to society. Got a debt to pay. Or bring a sacrifice. Bring a payment. You've been fined. Here's what you owe. Pay it. That's, that is the old covenant. That's the human system. Consider this historic quote from a book called Eternity Past. The covenant of grace was first made in Eden. After the fall, there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. To all men, this covenant offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. It also promised eternal life on condition of fidelity to God's law. Thus, the patriarchs received the hope of salvation. Hope of salvation based on what? Promise. Promise of what? Restoration. Restoration through what? Messiah. God's love. Through Messiah. Through the promised seed. The seed was promised to come and crush the serpent's head. And they were promised pardon freely. They were pardoned. And they were promised assisting grace or power from God. But they were also eternal life is promised only in harmony with God's law. Why? Because that's the only way it can happen, meaning? That because it's the only way God won't kill you because he's a just person. If you break his law, he's required to kill you. It's the only way he, you stay out of, of the death penalty and threat from, from execution is to obey the law? No. no. Because it's design law. In order to live forever, we need to be in harmony with God's law. Because that's how life is built to operate. It's very straightforward. It's the principles, protocols of life. Continue on with the quote. The same covenant was renewed to Abraham. In the promise, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, 18. Abraham trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It was this faith that was accounted unto him for righteousness. Pause. What is this being described? What came first? The recognition accounting of Abraham as righteous or Abraham's change of heart from distrust, lack of faith, to trust and faith? Which came first? The change of heart came first. And consider you have a spouse. He's the marriage metaphor. Consider you have a spouse that doesn't trust you at all, is afraid of you, is suspicious of you, won't listen to you, is constantly seeking to do their own thing, uh, running away from you. You know, Jose and Gomer, okay? But then they have a genuine change of heart, and they come to truly trust you completely. What happens in your relationship, assuming you are still loving and gracious and kind? What happens? 
What do you recognize of them when they have a true change of heart and genuinely trust you? Do you recognize something's changed in them? What can now happen in your marriage that could never happen before? The two shall become one. They are at one. Another way to say at one, atone. Atone. Atonement, two, being unified as one. Do you see how corrupt the penal legal lie is that teaches that Abraham had faith in a payment that enabled God to legally account him as righteous, even though Abraham wasn't set right or justified or made righteous? It's completely fraudulent. It's like your spouse doesn't trust you, doesn't want to be with you, constantly suspicious of you, constantly uh, rebelling against you, but somebody has come along and paid you a price And based on that price, you'll declare them to be loyal even though they're not. That's penal substitution theology. It's completely fraudulent and corrupt. Abraham's natural sinful heart, which is an enmity to God, was transformed, put right, or set right. When Abraham trusted God, the God of all truth recognized or reckoned or accounted it to be exactly what it was, a heart that was right or just or put right, which means justified. Why did God reckon it? Because through trust, Abraham was dwelt indwelt by the Holy Spirit who healed and transformed him and wrote the law upon Abraham's heart. That's the new covenant, write my law in your heart and mind. This is another way of saying having the mind of Christ, which is another way of saying having circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, which is another way of saying having the character of Christ, which is another way of saying being covered by the robe of his righteousness. They're all saying the same thing. It's reality. Continuing on. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. What's it mean? What law? What authority? The law of life. It maintained it by restoring Abraham to harmony, by writing it in his law, by restoring Abraham to operate on love and trust instead of fear and selfishness. Continue with the quote. The testimony of God was, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Though this covenant was made with Adam and renewed to Abraham, it could not be ratified until the death of Christ. What does this mean, ratified? Ratified, ratified. Is this some legal stamp some forensic execution of documents, some formal signing ceremony. So what this means, ratified? The promise, the covenant, cannot be ratified until the death of Christ. Well, ratification of something uh, means confirming it. That's all it means, confirming it, making it real. And in this case, ratification, the promise was made that the seed would come and crush the serpent's head, the sin problem. I'm coming to crush it. That's a promise. It's ratified when Christ achieves it. 
He fulfills the promise. He makes it happen. He becomes sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He was tempted in every way just like we are. So the ratification was simply that he came, born of a woman, lived sinlessly, and destroyed him who holds the power of death that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14, and destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10. The actual achievement of victory as a human being fulfilled the promise. That's the ratification. So it's, it's, it's not real simply because I, I am promising it. It's real when it happens. And thus Christ becomes the living agency to restore human beings back to God's original perfection and design of love. He's the agency that makes it happen. Continuing on. It, uh, the covenant, it had existed by the promise of God, it had been accepted by faith, yet when ratified by Christ, it is called a new covenant, the new covenant. The law of God was the basis of this covenant. You understand what that means? Well, the rules require a blood payment. Somebody has to pay the price because death is required. You have to kill the offender. And that's the law that requires somebody be executed. Is that how you hear that the law, or do you hear it as, it's the law of life, and Christ had to come and eliminate the deviation from the law of life and restore God's law back into the species human. He had to fix the problem. God's law, the law of God was the basis of this covenant, which was simply, listen to this, simply an arrangement for bringing men again into harmony with the divine will, placing them where they could obey God's law. An arrangement. The covenant is an arrangement for bringing men into harmony with the divine will. Did it say the the covenant is a legal adjustment of your status in record books where you can be legally declared to be one state when you're not really that state? No. This author doesn't see it that way. This author sees it as actually bringing men into actual harmony. Just like the scripture says that we become the righteousness of God. This is what the covenant is. We become. God heals the deviations from design. Another compact. The author goes on. Another compact called in scripture, the old covenant was formed between God and Israel at Sinai and was then ratified by the blood of a sacrifice. Another. Other. Other. Compact. That would not be the, the, the same compact. If it's an other one, it's not the same one, is it? It can't be the new one if it's another one. So this idea that the old and the new are basically the same, this author doesn't see it that way. The Abrahamic covenant ratified by blood of Christ is called the second or new covenant because the blood by which it was sealed was shed after the blood of the first. But if the Abrahamic covenant contained the promises of redemption, or the promise of redemption, why was another covenant formed at Sinai? In their bondage, the people had, to a great extent, lost the knowledge of the principles of the Abrahamic covenant. What did they lose knowledge of? The rules that they must obey? The principles of the Abraham. What are principles? What are principles? foundation they're design laws principles are how reality works they're the principles of life the principles of health it's how reality works they lost the principles of the uh, Abrahamic covenant in delivering them from Egypt God sought to reveal his power and mercy that they might be led to love and trust him how can you lead someone to love and trust you 
How can you do that? By experiences and examples. Can you get people to love and trust you by giving them a list of rules to obey with threats of punishments for disobedience and promises of rewards if they obey? Can you get love and trust by that? Because you'll really give them great rewards if they obey. You'll reward them. Can you get love and trust that way? But isn't this what parents do to their children often? They set rules and they promise rewards and threat threaten punishment. Don't parents do that? And do parents hope and often experience that their children come to love and trust them? So how can you get love and trust with rules that are threatened with punishments and promises of rewards? What what happens? Is there something that has to happen for love and trust to come out of such a relationship? The parent has to love. The child has to grow. In what way? Does it always work that children raised in homes with rules that are lovingly applied with rewards or threats, does it work that they always grow to love the parent? No. Sometimes they rebel. Is it greater evidence of love to have rules or to have no rules for your children? To have rules. But rules and rule enforcement can't engender love. How could you do that to your children if you can't get love by threatening rule breaking with punishments? What is the key? For the children to come to genuinely love and trust their parents who have set these rules? Isn't it getting, I think where you were going, to know the heart of the parent, partly, but that's not, that's not sufficient. Because I know many of my patients who have gone off into rebellious living, they will tell you their parents had lots of rules for them. And if you ask them, what was your, heart, your heart's, parents' heart's attitude to it? Oh, my parents loved me. They only did it because they thought that was best for me. I know that they, 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 they love me. Well, then why are you rebelling? Well, there's another reason. Knowing that the parent loves you and sets rules out of love with 100% certainty does not mean that you still don't rebel. What's missing? The critical thing that maybe our class is named after, the reason for the rules are missing. The reason for the rule is missing. When the kids grow up and understand the reasons for the rules that are tied in some way to design law, why did I have to brush my teeth? I don't know, but my parents made me do it, and you're going to do it too. They'll rebel again. If they never learn a reason, well, I know you did it because you love me, but that was a stupid rule. Why do we have to go to church on Sabbath instead of all my friends go on Sunday? Uh, Because there's a rule, and you've got to keep it. But if you actually have them understand the reasons behind the rule that if you want to keep your teeth healthy, that you brush and floss, then they come to grow at some point. They stop doing it for the rule. They start doing it because it's written in their heart. 
And they look back and say, thank you, mom and dad, for having that rule. Or playing in the street with traffic. Uh, uh, and that you, you might have to discipline with a little pop on the butt at some age. What? And the, the child cried and thought you were being mean. But as an adult, they look back and say, thank you for that rule. I needed it. Because they now understand the reasons for the rule. But if there are never any reasons, just rules, no reasons, just rules, not tied to some design reality of life, then you crush love. Then it becomes controlling. Then people rebel. Individuality becomes destroyed. And that's what happens in a lot of religion. Rules, some of them are actually nonsensical. They actually aren't connected to reality at all. Some of them actually have basis in reality, but the people who set them don't understand the basis, and they then teach them fraudulently as authoritarian. It says, uh, God bound them to himself as their deliverer from temporal bondage, but they had no true conception of of the holiness of God. What is your conception of holiness? I was not taught a conception of holiness that made sense to me growing up in the church at all. It was mystical. It was magical. It was amorphous. Don't go up on the platform. It's holy. Don't run in the sanctuary. It's holy. What happens if I do? It's bad. God's holy. (laughs) What happens if you go up on the platform during prayer when mama's eyes are shut? Yes, exactly. Yes. You know, I did. I snuck up uh, on the platform during the during the service sometimes. And, and you know what? God did not strike me down. Several of the elders wanted to. They truly did. There was not smiles on their faces. I didn't have a great concept of... It was mystical, magical, threatening. It was, God's holy. If you step on holy ground... You could take off this boundary. You could die. It was a scary thing. It wasn't an inviting thing. Did anybody else have that experience growing up with the idea of holiness? I see a couple of hands. Yeah. Well, what is holiness? Maybe a more accurate view of holiness. I think holiness is simply perfect harmony with God and God's design laws for life. So holiness is actually perfection, restoration of God's original design for life, Eternal healthiness and happiness. That's what holiness is. And to the degree we're out of harmony with God, then his presence becomes unpleasant to us because it exposes the, the, the sickness in us still, and we don't like that expose. It makes us feel bad. So to the degree we haven't had God's law written in our hearts and minds, we don't like the presence of holiness. Continuing on with the quote. They had no true conception of God, uh, of the holiness of God, of the exceeding sinfulness of their own hearts, their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God's law and their need of a savior. They didn't understand that sin is a heart issue, mind issue, character issue, motive issue, not simply behavior. Therefore, salvation is a inner issue, writing the law, the new covenant on the heart and mind, not a simple adjustment of legal status in some um, archaic book system somewhere. How many still don't understand this today with the new covenant? They still don't understand. The old covenant is a legal covenant based on false law concepts of former slaves. The new covenant is the restoration of the sinner 
within the center of God's law of life and heals and transforms the being to be able to live in God's presence. That's the difference. Continuing on with the quote, God gave them his law with the promise of great blessing and the condition of obedience. You obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. You will be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people did not realize the sinfulness of their own hearts and that without Christ it was impossible for them to keep God's law. Again, the old covenant based on external behavior, performance, law, code, ritual. New is based on condition of heart, dying to the old uh, motives, being reborn with Christ-like character. Continuing with the quote, feeling able to establish their own righteousness, they declared all the Lord says we will do. And this is the basis of the penal legal theologies. We form a God in the image of the God King, and if you haven't been reading the blogs the last two weeks, we're in the middle of a three-part series. Anybody read the first two parts? Fantastic. I did not write them. I'm a guest writer writing them. I, I love when somebody in, uh, lets me learn something new. And this three-part series is just fantastic. Uh, the third part will go up this coming Thursday, and I encourage you to read the whole series. The, the title is, Who Created Whom? An Exploration of the Origin of Our Favorite God. And our favorite God is the imperial dictator God who makes up laws and punishes lawbreakers. And where did that God come from? Certainly not the eternal good news or gospel. This is what humans have made, and it describes how through human history and how sin has actually caused sinners to create this God concept. It's the imperial God-king concept. And how law and imperial law is an adaptation in a sinful world for survival purposes. And societies who create the imperial law and have a stronger imperial law system are the ones who succeed. And groups that have more loose and and less consistent laws are the ones who fail. And so survival dynamic going on, driven by fear. It's really well done. I encourage you to read it. The problem, though, with this God-King concept is that we create a God who is an imperial dictator ruler who is seeking to uh, inflict justice by inflicting penalties upon lawbreakers, and then we make up theories of salvation that we must have some legal accounting mechanism or payment done in a heavenly judicial system. And in this way, we exert power over God. Understand the real dynamic here of why they love the penal system so much. It's their ability to have power over God. You see, when you understand a legal system, if you apply the right payment to the deity, the deity is no longer permitted to kill you. The penalty has been paid, God. I'm off. We create a fa- and then we create a false priestly class who intercedes with sinners and this God, negate, navigating the complex and confusing theological legal landscape with language the average person can't understand. And you're just told to follow through this ritualistic or other systematic system of of actions in order to make sure that your legal debts have been paid. So the God who will kill you otherwise can't. You're in control now. Monday's lesson, it asks us to read Hosea 2, uh, 18 through 20, but I want to start with verse 14 and go through 23. And this is um, out of the NIV. It says, so I'm going to, to take her into the desert again, talking about the people of Israel. I'm going to take her into the desert again. This is a reminder. Take her into the desert. This is a reminder of coming out of Egypt and going into the desert, which represents the bondage of sin. Egypt, they were in bondage. So this is, I'm going to take them out of the bondage of sin. 
Okay? And I will lead you out of that bondage into the desert where you will be free. But in a desert, think about this. There's a great powerful object lesson here. You cannot provide for yourself in the desert. You will survive in the desert as you eat the bread of heaven sent by me and as you drink the water of life coming from the rock, which is me. And so when we are let out of the bondage of sin, we don't, don't survive unless we're partaking of Christ, the bread of heaven, and drinking the water of life from Christ, which is a new life and, and right spirit. It's really cool. There I will win her back with words of love. It's going to lead us there and win us back with words of love. What is it that wins us? Laws, rules, punishments, or love. Paul wrote in Romans 2.14, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I will give back to her the vineyards she had and make Trouble Valley a door of hope. Vineyards represent life. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. We're grafted into Christ. And we which were dead in trespass and sin, we come to life and bring forth peaceable fruits of righteousness. We blossom and we bring forth fruit as we're connected to the vine. She will respond to me. She will respond to me there, there as she did when she was young, when she came from Egypt. This is the end time people now that is being referred to who are called out of the world, out of Babylon, out of the false legal systems, out of the slavery of this world, into the true covenant relation with God in which he uh, writes the law on the heart and they love God and others more than self. They live the fruits of God's kingdom. Now notice what comes next. This is quite astounding. Then once again, she will call me her husband. She will no longer call me her Baal. I will never let her speak the name Baal again. Wow. What kind of relationship here? Husband. Why? Marriage. This is a covenant relationship based on mutual love and trust. This is a reverence, reference to the new covenant, which we're talking about, in which we come into unity with God, and he writes his law in our hearts and minds, and we are at one, united with God, and notice that when we come into this unity we got, when we let him write his law in our hearts, when we've been recreated to see God for who he is as our creator and his laws, his design laws, we will then stop calling God Baal. And remember who Baal was. I have to go through it again. I've done it many times. I have to do it. It's so, so appropriate here. Baal was the son of El. El as in Elohim or El Shaddai. So El was the father God. Baal was the son of God. Okay, Baal was the god of weather, thunder, renewal, and harvest. He was the creator god. Baal fought against the great serpent, Leviathan, and fought against the god of death, Moat. In his battle with Moat, the god of death, Baal dies, rises again, and brings life to the land. Now, how many of you worship a god who is the son of the heavenly father, who is the creator who fights the great serpent in our behalf and crushes the serpent's head. We've been reading about the seed to crush the serpent's head, who fights against death and dies and rises again to bring us life. But that's Baal. But isn't the problem that it's a god of appeasement? So what is the difference? You're already on it. Baal required payment, appeasement, sacrifice to merit his blessing. And Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ 
to all the Christians who are worshiping a God who requires the blood of a human sacrifice to be paid to the Father so that God won't kill them. That's Baal work. When we come to the new covenant as described here in Hosea, we will experience God in that intimate at one minute where he writes his law. We will see him as our designer creator. We will stop calling him Baal. Stop saying his justice requires that he kill and that he put all the sins on his son and he killed Jesus at the cross. Stop calling him Baal. So we enter the new covenant. We're generally known by him. So John 17, 3, life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ now sent. And we finally see the truth that the penal legal theologians are pagans and teaching pagan theology. That's They're the pagan priests, just like Elijah confronted 450. Notice, 450 priests of Baal, Elijah, the truth. In our society today, it seems that it's weighted in that same way. The vast majority of theologians are presenting the the Baal view of God with a few voices and understand Malachi prophesied at the end of time, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. And what must he do? He turns the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the father. In other words, it's the message of God's character of love which brings us into unity. And when this happens, notice the context. You will no longer come to me. I will be your husband to you. We have the intimacy, the oneness. We no longer see God as man. We see him as our creator. And back to Hosea. At that time, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and birds so that they will not harm my people. And will also remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, and will let that my people live in peace. Israel, I will make you my wife. I will be true and faithful, and I will show you constant love and mercy and make you mine forever. What happens when we finally reject the Baal views of God, finally enter into intimacy and know him as he wants to be intimate with, what does he do? He heals his creation from the consequences and the infection of the survival of fittest drives from sin and restores the earth. This is talking about the new heaven and the earth now. But we have to come back to seeing God and worshiping him for who he has revealed himself to be and have the unity. And keep going on. I will keep my promise and make you mine, and you will acknowledge me as Lord. At that time, I will answer the prayers of my people Israel, and I will make rain fall on the earth, and the earth will produce corn and grapes and olives. I will establish my people in the land and make them prosper. I will show love to those who were called unloved. And to those who were called not my people, I will say, you are my people. And they will answer, you are our God. And who then is this promise made to? Who is he going to do this for? Everybody who's willing to respond. The whole world. It has nothing to do with genetics. They asked us also to read Ezekiel 11, um, 19 and 20. It says, I will give them a new heart and a new mind. I will take away their stubborn heart of stone. I will give them an obedient heart. Then they will keep my laws and faithfully obey my commands. They will be my people and I will be their God. Again, what's being described here? Does this sound like it's legal adjustment or something actually happening in the people? I mean, the scriptures are so obvious on this. Do you realize how hard people have to work to deny that this is what the plan of salvation is? And then I was reading this week, 
just in my own devotional time, out of a book called Steps to, Steps to Christ. And I came across this in regard, and, it, and, it meant, and it, it's dealing with the new covenant, so I thought I'd share some of this with you. When as erring, sinful beings we come to Christ and become partakers of his pardoning grace, love springs up in the heart. What's, what's described? Is it a declaration? We accept the legal payment. He declares us to have love in our heart even though we hate people still. I mean, that's understanding. That's what they teach. They don't use those words. They just say you're declared to be righteous even though you're not, but they're saying you're declared to have love in your heart even though you hate everybody. It's ridiculous, folks. No, love actually springs up in the heart. We become changed. Continue on the quote. Every burden is light, for the yoke of Christ imposes is easy. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice of pleasure. The path that before seems shrouded in darkness becomes bright with the beams of the sun of righteousness. Our minds become enlightened. We see how reality works. Have you not noticed that to be true in your journey with the Lord? I have. I can tell you I see things so much more clearly than I did back when I still operated under the human law construct of things. Things make so much more sense. The loveliness of the character of Christ will be seen in his followers. It was his delight to do the will of God. Love to God, zeal for his glory, was the controlling power of our Savior's life. Love beautified and ennobled his actions. Love is of God. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate or produce it. It is found only in the heart where Jesus reigns. We love because he first loved us. Again, what's being described. This is functional operational, transformational, regenerational. Uh, In the heart renewed by divine grace, love is the principle of action. Again, design, reality, healing, renewal. It modifies the character, governs the impulses, controls the passions, subdues enmity, ennobles the affections. Again, this is not happening in a record book. It's happening in the living agent, the person. This love cherished in the soul sweetens the life and sheds a refining influence on all around. There are two errors against which the children of God, particularly those who have just come to trust in his grace, especially need to guard. The first already dwelt upon is looking to their own works, trusting in anything they can do to bring themselves into harmony with God. He who is trying to become holy by his own works and keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. It is the grace of Christ alone through faith that... Faith that can make us holy. What do those words mean to you? Make us holy. What that means is that in heaven, when you accept Jesus, God declares to the onlooking universe that through the blood and merits of Jesus, you are legally recognized as being holy, even though you're still not. That's what those words actually mean. Is that what those words say to you? That make us holy? It's describing real righteousness, righteousness by faith, actual healing of heart, mind, and soul. We are changed. This is the reality of the good news. Continuing on, the opposite and no less dangerous error is that belief in Christ releases men from keeping the law of God. That since by faith alone we become partakers of the grace of Christ, our works have nothing to do with redemption. Why is this so dangerous? And the only reason this error can creep in is because there's a a presupposition or a false premise already believed that allows this error to come in. What's the presupposition? 
that God's law functions like human law. If God's law functions like human law and it's just legal and you have legal payments, then all the sins, past, present, and future, put on Christ. Christ was punished in our stead. We accept that. Then it doesn't matter. My future sins are already paid. So what difference? I've accepted it. I'm under grace now. So keeping the law is irrelevant. It's all done by Christ. But if you understand design law, then you understand that through Christ, the truth to win us to trust has been established. The remedy of a perfect, sinless human character has been developed. We can receive that by faith or grace, uh, by, by grace through faith. But God's law are still the living law, the laws upon which life are built. And if you violate them, you just add new injury to your conscience, your soul, your character. You damage yourself more. So it would be like this. An alcoholic who has drank heavily for years in liver failure gets a liver transplant. Instead of a new heart, he gets a new liver. It's a new lease on life. But the liver transplant that brings new life does not give the person license to keep drinking. Because the alcohol violates the laws of health and will simply destroy the new liver too. So when you come to Christ and experience his grace to be reborn, it doesn't give you license to violate the very laws upon which life are built. You'll just destroy yourself. Continuing on. But notice here that obedience is not a mere outward compliance, but the service of love. If it's not an outward compliance, what is obedience? Hearkening to the voice of God, she said. What kind of law focuses on outward compliance? Human laws. Imposed laws. It's always outward compliance. In fact, you would be quite offended if some government began to pass laws that would judge and punish people for the thoughts that they had. Would you like to live in that place? We could tell by your face right then that you thought about it. That's illegal in our society. Only, only good thoughts here. We're going to punish that. No, human laws cannot judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how human laws work. It's all behavior-based. God's law, though, is the law upon which life operates. And even if you have a perfectly civil righteous life. In other words, you obey the laws of the land and you never get into legal trouble in which you live. And you might even be held up as a bastion of, of, a, of a citizen of law and order. You can still rush home to keep the Sabbath after you get Christ down off the cross. You can still be God's worst enemy by keeping all the rules. Continue the quote. The law of God is an expression of his very nature. It is an embodiment of the great principle of love and hence is the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. Where does God's law originate? His nature, his character, it is an expression of himself that exudes or extends out from himself. It is the protocols upon which he constructed the entire reality to operate. It's the foundation of his government. Because all, all reality is built upon the laws that emanate from God's character, which is the law of love. 
It's the government of heaven and earth. Do you see how Christianity has failed to present the truth about God's law and government and how the message to lighten the world, the message of the three angels, has been misrepresented through imperial law? Understand the message of the three angels. There's three messages. First message, first message is the eternal good news, the eternal gospel. God is creator. He made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that. Worship him as creator whose laws are the laws of love expressed in his character upon which reality is built. And do this now because the time has come in human history to just make a right judgment. His time for his judgment has come. Judge him to be eternally good, eternal creator whose laws are design laws. Stop judging him to be Baal. First, first, first point. See God who he really is. First, first message, first angel. At the end of time, this is it. But the second message, after you see God for who he is, recognize Babylon and that system of imperial human law and coercion and threat and rulemaking is confused, is contradictory. You will see people that say you have to wear your masks then they'll take them off in their own activities and you can't have a, a gathering, but then they have their gathering and you see all this contradictory stuff going on in society because human laws are inconsistently applied. It's confusing. Recognize Babylon is a system that has fallen based on imperialism and all these views of God that teach that he runs his universe that way are corrupt. Come out of her, my people. Come out of this system and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. And then the, if, when you see God for who he is and you recognize that all these imperial made-up laws and imposed punishments are completely corrupt and confusing, then you will also understand in the third angel that God, for those who will not come back and worship him, those who insist on a rule-making God, who insist on violating God's designs for life, then God lets them reap what they sow. And the third angel takes you through design law after design law after design law. And what happens when God stops shielding the rebellious from what occurs when they violate his design laws? Law of wor- the law of worship, law of liberty, law of love, and law of truth are all in the third angel's message. And violations have consequence that are terrible, horrible for the people that are in, that are insisting on leaving. So see God for who he is and be healed. Get out of the system that's lying to you about who God is. But if you insist on that system instead, God will set you free to reap it. And it's going to be a horrible, ugly thing. If our hearts are renewed in likeness of God, if the divine love is implanted in the soul, will we will not the law of God be carried out in the life? When the principle of love is implanted in the heart, when man is renewed after the image of him that created him, the new covenant promise is fulfilled. What is the new according to this also the new covenant promise? Nothing legal at all going on here, folks. Nothing judicial. This is completely regenerational, recreational, healing, transformational. Because God's law is a living law to be written into the heart and mind of the living being. I'm going to move on to Tuesday's lesson. Third paragraph in Tuesday's lesson says, Though the new covenant is called better, the real, there really is no difference in the basic elements that make up both the old and the new covenant. And they go on to say, it is the same God who offers salvation in the same, the same way by grace. It is the same God who seeks a people who by faith will claim his promises of forgiveness. It is the same God who seeks to write the law on, into hearts and minds of those who follow him 
in faith, in a faith relationship, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So if, if we focus, and we understand God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if we say focus simply on God and God's activity in the covenant, then yes, God is seeking the same thing in both the old and the new, and he wants to do the same thing, and his methods are the same because you can't heal externally. It has to be heart and mind. So to that degree, that's correct. Um, but is the covenant to save individual sinners a one-sided arrangement? See, God covenanted or promised in Eden to save the human race, the species human, in the person of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and that this creation will be saved through Jesus without any help from any of you or me. We didn't do a thing to help Jesus win that victory. And because Jesus became a real human being and won the victory and rose again in a perfected humanity, the species human exists for all eternity future. The species was saved in the person. Just You have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Humans will always exist because of Jesus. That's salvation. That's the covenant promise to save the species, the planet, the creation. But And in so doing, he also provides to all individuals the option of being part of it. Every human being has an invitation freely extended for free remedy and free healing so that you can also be saved. But, but notice, saving the species, God did on his own. Saving you and me, God cannot do on his own. Does everybody agree with that or does anybody disagree? Every individual is, who is saved is saved freely by God. In other words, God extends it to you without cost to you. You're not paying for it. But he can't do it without your participation. It requires your active involvement, your engagement, your trust, your your opening of your heart. So the old covenant and the new are, are the same in what... If the old covenant are new, then why are they called old and new and not just one covenant? While God is the same, the actual agreement or the arrangement between the two parties was not the same. God was the same. The arrangement or agreement was not the same. The new covenant, which is actually the plan of salvation, which is the only real treatment plan to heal and save sinners, this is where the law gets written on the heart. The old covenant... If it was the same, why didn't God write the law on their heart to Sinai? Why didn't he do it? Why did he put it on stone? Because that's exactly right. They rejected him. They were unwilling to let him write it on his heart. That was his goal. And because they wouldn't let him write it on his heart, then he needed to put it on stone. And he put it on stone for a purpose. What was the purpose of putting it on stone? It was object lesson. Stone Can stone love? No, it was a metaphor of their hard hearts. Their hearts are stone. But there was more than that. It was also useful. There was a purpose in it. And it was, in my view, three, three different purposes of the, of the law on stone. One, it was a promise. Two, it was a diagnostic tool. Three, it was a protective hedge. The promise, if you trust me and let me heal your heart, then you will have no other gods before me. You will not make graven images. You will not... Uh, 
uh, take my name in vain. You will remember the liberty and freedom of my methods by honoring my Sabbath and living those methods out. You will honor your parents. You won't murder, commit adultery, bear false witness, uh, steal, and, and covet. This is what you will look like. It's a promise of what you'll look like. But it's also a diagnostic tool. If you look at that list, it exposes where we fall short and lets us know that we're sick and leads us to the heavenly physician who will then write it on our hearts and heal us. And it's a protective hedge. Even before the sinner trusts God and allows him to heal the heart, if they choose not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to worship false gods, they are protected from the greater damage that would happen to them if they did all those things. So God gave it to them because he wouldn't, they wouldn't let him put it in their heart as a promise, a diagnostic tool, and a protection. Any questions? So Wednesday's first paragraph says, Yesterday we saw that regarding the basic element of the Old and New Covenants were the same. You know, he keeps saying that over and over again. And the basic elements are not the same. God is the same. The basic elements are quite distinct and different. One is the new covenant, I will heal the damage in you, recreate in you a new heart and right spirit. The old covenant, we will work hard, and we will do our part of the agreement. These are not even close to being the same thing. But they keep wanting to emphasize it because they're operating at level four. Level four is rules imposed, and you must obey. If you don't obey, you have more demerits against your, your name in heaven. And even though you had the ones you confessed yesterday, had the blood of Christ applied and erased, and if you commit another one day, you get a new one in the, in the book, and you're still back out of grace again. You're in and out, in and out. It's just sick. Okay. Now, the bottom line is salvation by faith in God who will forgive our sins, not because of anything worthy in us but only because of his grace as a result of this forgiveness we enter into relationship with him in which we surrender to him in faith and obedience do you see the embedded false legal distortion here or not do you see it it's embedded it's subtle understand that the the barrier to reconciliation with a god uh, from the worshiper is always in pagan systems the unforgiving attitude of the deity. Something needs to be done to get free. Forgiveness is the barrier. If we can get God to forgive us, then we can get back into his grace. In Christianity, as you understand it, was God's forgiveness ever in question? Was it ever withheld? Was it ever something that needed to be earned, even by the blood of a sinless sacrifice, so that he could be legally allowed to forgive? You know, his heart wants to, but his law won't let him until Jesus paid the penalty. And now, because he loved us so much, he sent his son who died for us. And, and now, because he, he, he already had this forgiving heart, now he can legally forgive us, but he couldn't before. That was never it. Christ forgave those who put him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is free. Satan will die in the end forgiven. God does not hold an unforgiving attitude towards Satan. He forgives all freely. This is one of Satan's allegations. Satan alleged God's not allowed to forgive. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. Justice is inconsistent with mercy. And should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Satan's original, God can't forgive you. He can't pardon you. He has to punish sin. That's what he has to do. And so we have this whole penal legal theology where, yes, he does. All the sins put on Jesus. He had to be punished there. It's Satan's view of God. It's wrong. 
The barrier to our reconciliation is not in God's side. It's in our side. That's right. And so, yes, God freed the free. And it's true that if God were unforgiving and didn't forgive, then, then we're without hope and we couldn't be reconciled. That's absolutely true, but that was never the problem. So it is true that God's forgiveness is necessary, but it was always freely extended. The problem was not God's forgiveness. What's the problem? What kept the people who crucified Christ from salvation when Christ freely forgives them? Their own hearts, which means they didn't do what? Repent. They didn't allow the forgiveness or the kindness of God to lead them to repentance. And so it's not forgiveness that through forgiveness that we enter into a relationship with God. It is through repentance that we enter a relationship with God. So uh, I I rewrote this sentence, if I can find where I put that. Um, Yeah, so I would say it would be more accurately, accurately written this way. The bottom line is that salvation by faith is in God uh, who forgives all our sins freely without any work or payment from us. And it is his kindness, his free pardon, his forgiveness that leads us to repentance. As a result of his forgiveness and our repentance, we enter into relationship together in which he heals all the damage caused by sin and gives us the gift of eternal life. That's how I would say it. It's subtle. You read that, and most people don't pick up on that, but it beds a lie into your mind. The obstacle is God's forgiveness. And thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty so God can forgive me. He always forgave. And Jesus came to take sin upon himself. He who knew sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous. This is the new covenant where we actually become restored to godliness, righteousness, by the indwelling spirit who lives in us. We're out of time. Didn't get to Thursday's lesson, which was all about the sanctuary in heaven. I got notes, so if you want to see thoughts about the sanctuary in heaven and what it is actually constructed out of, it's all in the notes. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your goodness and your mercy and your watch care. Thank you for covenanting, covenanting with us to be our substitute in taking this terrible terminal condition up, destroying this infection of selfishness, sin, fear, restoring in humanity your perfection of love and truth, the perfect character of Christ. And now we ask that your spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, writing your law in our hearts and minds that we can be participants in this covenant relationship of restoration that you have for us. And empower us now to give this message at this time in human history, to call people out of this fraudulent thing that keeps them in darkness and fear of you so that they might participate also in the true freedom that are in Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen.